I want you to join me in Hosea chapter 1. We're going to be in the Old Testament in Hosea chapter 1. And so if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have a smartphone or some sort of a device that will get you access to the Bible and to Hosea, then we want to put a Bible into your hands. So if you don't have one, would you just do me a favor and hold your hand up and raise your hand and hold it there? And uh, we, will, we will put a Bible into your hands. And so we want this to be a communal effort. This is something that we do. This isn't just something I stand up here and pretend to be an expert while you sit quietly and listen. But instead, this is a practice where we rally around the Word of God. And I want you to hold me accountable in this, that, that His good news comes out when we open the Bible, because we believe that we don't just open the Bible and read it, but miraculously somehow the Bible actually reads us. And we don't just open the Bible and expose what's in it, but something amazing happened. As I read earlier when we, be- when we began, the Bible actually starts to expose us. So we're going to be in Hosea chapter 1. We're going to pick up where we left off. We'll be in verse 2. We went so far this last week into Hosea that we stopped in verse 1. And so I want to invite you to Hosea, maybe give you a little bit of a a roundabout review of what we've been doing and why we do it. So here we are, we just began last week spending our time on Sundays in the book of Hosea, a minor prophet that is a smaller prophet, one of the 12 of the smaller prophets and the smaller books of prophecy in the Old Testament. And if you find yourself thinking, I've never seen this before, I've never heard of Hosea, I don't know anything about Hosea, well you are in really good company because For that very reason alone, I hope this is a good place where we even might find in the most obscure places in the Bible a remnant, a seed of God's good news that he has for us throughout the entirety of the scripture. And so even as we jump into a place that maybe you haven't read before, um, man, we want to do something and, and we want to open up God's word and begin to see that this seed of good news can be found everywhere. And what you'll find in the book of Hosea, first and foremost, is God speaks. God reveals himself. And the assumption that a prophet makes and that we make when we open up a book and listen to the words of a prophet is that God is actually saying something to the point that this is no longer at some point miraculously just ink on a page, but it becomes actually the word of God that originates from his creativity and his perfection. And so last week we sprinted through the entirety of the scripture to see the ways in which that God's word always brings light out of darkness and life where there was nothingness. From the very beginning, where all of creation, we believe miraculously and amazingly that all of this came into being because God spoke. God emanated something from his perfection and his infiniteness and his righteousness. And out of it came something that even he would agree is good such that things around us are not just tolerable and keep us alive, but they are beautiful and joyable, and they're marks and evidences of His grace. So an apple isn't just something that gets you by, it's actually something that's delicious, right? And, and things like bacon, God help us, right? Or, or as I, I even share with you, salads and, and all sorts of great things that you also love, I'm sure. Man, those things are beautiful. They're not just tolerable, but they're delicious, And any time we enjoy this, we get to look back into eternity and realize that this came from the imagination of a good and loving God. This isn't by accident, but it is remnant. It's a piece of this amazing thing that God is showing to us, that God reveals himself. But as we will see today, I think you'll come to find out that there's a shocking nature of God's word and that God speaks in a way that's powerful. And so we want to read verse 1 through 5, picking up where we left off, digging into God's word. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. And the land, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So last week we opened our minds to the possibility that God speaks. And this week I want to possibly suggest that God not only speaks, but He's revealing His character in amazing and powerful ways. That God is doing something from the beginning to reveal Himself. So that He is not a God who is up there and out there, but He is a God who is with us and among us. To the point that we believe with a great deal of conviction that God reveals His character most clearly amidst the brokenness of a fallen, sinful world. And He asks His people to demonstrate His character and the brokenness of the world by remarkable, even costly means. So it's not just that we believe that God speaks as the first phrase of this book tells us that the word of the Lord comes to Hosea and then to us, but it's also that we believe that God reveals His character and communicates Himself to us most clearly amidst the brokenness of a fallen and sinful world. God chooses in His great and mysterious character and in His perfection to reveal Himself in this way. And it doesn't bother God to do so, but instead it gives Him great joy to do so. So let me start asking for mercy and asking for grace. We sprinted through the Bible last week looking at the ways in which God's Word is a thing that is living and active. It is a thing that comes to us most fully and completely in Jesus Christ, such that when we look into God's Word to be spoken to us, and when we ask ourselves, what does it really mean for God to speak, right? Because does God have a mouth? And if so, what, what, is, what is that like? I mean, is he, and the only way that begins to make sense is if God is kind of the the, the white-haired, white-bearded old man, and he has features like you and I. But that, is, that isn't helpful because God is infinitely greater than this. So if, if God is speaking and maybe God doesn't as fully as we can possibly understand it have a mouth like you and I, then what do we mean when we say that God is speaking or communicating himself to us? What do we mean when we say that God is saying something to us? And the way we understand this is through John chapter 1, when the gospel of Jesus is introduced to us, not as just a word, but as a person. And at the beginning of all creation began with God speaking, not just that there should be light and that the heavens and the earth should come into being, but in the midst of that light there will be a greater light that is Jesus Christ. And that word is a word spoken to you and to me. And so that we would wonder no more what it is that God has to say for us. We could know forever and ever that our God speaks. And the word that he speaks to us is not a word of wrath or judgment, but it is finally and completely and sufficiently in Jesus Christ a word of mercy, a word of life. And if that's the gospel, 
if that's the good news of God speaking words of life into us, then you might be asking a good question here. Why are we in the Old Testament? Right? If that's the good news in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and that's the story of this New Testament movement that we're a part of, it might be good to ask, why are we in the Old Testament? That's a great question. And to that I would simply say, if God speaks fully and completely in the Gospel, the good news, the Word of God is Jesus Christ. Not only that He comes to save, but finally, as we saw in Revelation 19, 20, and 21, He comes back with a tattoo on His thigh, and the people proclaim that His name, that is Jesus, is the Word of God. And if we believe that Jesus is it, and He is the good news, and God speaks that good news to us, and that is the Gospel, then what we find in the Old Testament is the Gospel in its seed form. So if the fruitfulness of God's goodness is in Jesus Christ pouring out His blood for you and for me, to which we say that God's love has no end, it never fails, and that's the fruitfulness that God's love finally has, finally in Jesus Christ and in us and in the movement we're a part of, then that movement, that good news that's manifest in Jesus and coming to life in us is in its seed form throughout the Old Testament. And when we look in Hosea, we may not see explicitly the names Jesus or Mary or Joseph or the apostles, but what we do see is this same good news that used and changed all of those people in its seed form. And it's shocking because God reveals His character most clearly amidst brokenness in a fallen and sinful world. Such that I ask for your mercy as we dig through this. I don't know if that caught you off guard, but this is a story we don't talk about much and I want to bring out and I don't want to do so in, in a salacious manner or in a way that's intentionally provocative. But you begin to see the provocative nature of this word. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea. So you catch this picture again that God chooses, as we see here, to demonstrate His character and the brokenness of the world by remarkable costly means. And he asks his people to be a part of it. So that first phrase there in verse 2 says that the Lord spoke to Hosea, something we believe is powerful and active in our own lives, but he also speaks through Hosea. And this is where you and I might get excited. Awesome, I get to tell people what God says, right? Thus saith the Lord. But all of a sudden we see the ways in which God's speaking actually is radically against our intuitive nature and it's against our culture. Because instead of saying, hey Hosea, I'm going to speak to you and through you and it's going to be awesome and you're going to love it and you're going to be so happy and happily ever after will you be. Did you catch what he tells Hosea to do? Go take for yourself a wife of prostitution, of harlotry, whatever your translation may say, of, of deep immorality of promiscuous immorality, and then have children out of this promiscuous, promiscuous immorality. Why? Because the land commits this great promiscuous immorality. The land commits this great spiritual adultery by forsaking the Lord. So, if that comes to you as sort of provocative or shocking in nature, that's actually good. That's exactly what this book is meant to illustrate. In fact, if I say the words, I'm, I don't even, I'm, not even, I'm not even comfortable saying them, right? But if I say these words, go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, if that doesn't make you a little bit uncomfortable, then something's wrong. And the purpose of this book might be lost on you. 
but it's meant to illustrate the provocative nature of God's faithfulness and the provocative nature of our sinfulness. Such that when God speaks to Hosea and when he gives Hosea a command, something amazing comes out and it first catches us off guard. Now, in the weeks to come, we'll talk about this more deeply, about how the Bible is built on this concept of not only God speaking, but of God revealing himself and illustrating himself to people through other people. And God speaks through those people amidst difficult circumstances. And the way that God speaks to us implies a relationship to us that we call covenant. A covenant that is a contract for us between us and God. A covenant that we break. And being that we are in contract with God who is infinitely greater in value and circumstance than we are, that's a big deal. Right? So you would agree that if you breach the covenant or contract with the bank, you're more at risk than they are. They have more power. They have more wealth. They have more influence over you. And so if they have a boo-boo, oops. Right? Maybe we'll even bail them out with $800 billion. I don't know, right? But if you, if you go in breach of contract with a, with a bank who is greater in stature and influence than you, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. And we multiply that kind of inequality in covenant times the infinite perfection of God. And now you begin to see what a big deal it is to have broken this covenant that God has when he speaks to us. This word, God did not wish to remain hidden. And this word draws us into a relationship. And it is out of his royal majesty that God emerges from his heights in his divine existence. And he comes down to us through weird and provocative means. And he doesn't ignore the, the universe that he's created, but instead he comes to be with it. And to believe in this is to begin to be changed by and participate in this word in our own life. So as such, I don't want to be any more offensive than the Bible is. So the next couple of weeks we'll talk about the nature of covenant and agreement and therefore marriage. And the Bible and the picture that the Bible gives us of human sexuality and what it's meant to look like. Not that you and I, hear me clearly, not that you and I have it as our job to stand out there and rant against all the things we disagree with, but instead that, as I will show you, it is for us to be the people of God who demonstrate the character of God in all that we do. Be it friendship, or in this case, sexuality and marriage. It is for us to hold up as such a beautiful and desirable example of the character and nature of God such that people will see it and want it for themselves. So there's this great picture and a high and exalted view of this covenant and agreement of God, so much so that the only way that it could be illustrated to us is to show us through the life of Hosea the ways in which that breach of contract plays out in the most important contract that the Bible knows, that is marriage. So show me mercy. I don't want to be salacious or, or say things that I ought not to, but I also want to be as provocative as this text really is. 
So here's what I would say to even my six-year-old. This is how I, I explain it to her. She's asked, what is this? What, what is that, Daddy? And so here's what I would say. This, this is, remember, because this is meant to point to something greater, and it says that the unfaithfulness, i.e. whoredom of this person, is meant to ultimately paint a picture of what? Did you catch that in verse 2? The ways in which God's people have unfaithfully forsaken God himself. So there isn't, like, you won't see over the next, I mean, there's a little bit, it gets a little bit tricky um, in, in the next chapter, but you won't see, like, a, a very graphic representation of what it is that they're talking about. In fact, it's meant to be an epithet that gets your imagination going and gets you thinking about the radical nature of God's faithfulness to people who are blatantly and publicly unfaithful to him. So I just say to my daughter, this is a person, Hosea, that God called to love another person, Gomer, who would not love him back. This is a story about how God asks a man, Hosea, to be faithful to a woman, Gomer, who is not faithful to him. This is a picture of God's love for you and for me, even for a six-year-old to grasp, that God sends this person to love sacrificially this other person in such a way that even when they run away, it doesn't diminish the great love that Hosea has for his unfaithful Fill in the blank with your own chosen epithet, wife. Take for yourself a wife of this promiscuity. Now, it's meant to be an epithet, so it's meant to, even the ways in which we probably don't use, again, I don't want to drag anyone to sinful thoughts here, but the ways in which we use these words aren't usually scientific. Agreed? Like if someone pulls out the word whore, it could mean all sorts of things, and it's abused, even in our culture, correct? Correct? So it could imply all sorts of kind of immorality, all sorts of kinds of promiscuity. It typically, we'll all have to just agree, is not a compliment. Correct? Right? So this is something that's bad. This is something that's demeaning and derogatory. And it's meant to conjure up all sorts of images of immorality, such that we begin to conjure up images radical in nature of our own immorality and our own rebelliousness against God. And the ways in which this person is forsaking her husband, so also the people of God forsake their God. But in the same ways that God commanded Hosea to love and to cherish and to be faithful till death do you part, this unfaithful woman, so also God demonstrates his love for us in the same exact way. And we call that love good news. But you also caught there, there's a, 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 the language of judgment. Did you get that? Call his name Jezreel. This is a place where great judgment apparently has already taken place. And Jehu came and out of violence exacted God's revenge on people, but he did so out of his own hatred rather than out of obedience to God. And that ought to also catch you off guard. Because we naturally, don't, we, we naturally get uncomfortable when we think about God's judgment on the world, right? When God's smiting and God destroying. I, go ahead, read the rest of the Old Testament. Read Joshua and Judges. And God commands some people to do some pretty awful and terrible things for the sake of his glory and that automatically makes us uncomfortable so begin to see the radical nature of this and it's because god is always going to be quicker to judge than you and me and that's because he is infinite in righteousness and therefore has the right and ability to do so and that should always catch us off guard it should always make us think can god really do that it should always make us wonder, is God really good and perfect enough to judge and smite and destroy and to condemn? And the answer over and over again, the Bible tells us, is that God is so holy, so set apart, so infinite in nature, and so perfect 
that he alone has the right to judge. So the reason this catches off guard is because the only pictures of judgment and wrath that we know of are the pictures that we experience in our world. And when you think about someone exacting judgment or punishment, it's usually from a person that, man, I really, I wish they weren't the ones doing it. And it's usually in means that maybe aren't that perfect. And it's usually for things that may or may not be verifiable. And even the death penalty, even our own culture, is something we, we, we approach with great fear and trepidation. Because we kind of wonder, I don't, can we really do this? Is this really the right thing to do? Who really can judge? And so we always ought to approach that kind of wrath and that kind of judgment with a great deal of fear and trepidation. Knowing that God alone is able to judge better than we. Because we only have the evidence available to us, right? We can only judge by what we see. We can only judge by what eyewitnesses we have access to. But God knows the heart. He is infinite in knowledge. Omniscient is the word we use, such that when he judges, it's always right and always perfect. God is always quicker to judge than we are because he is perfect and righteous. However, here's what I would also throw out. As we will see in this book and even in the rest of the books to come in the Bible, thank God he is always quicker to forgive than we are. So out of God's infinite perfection, he is not only right and righteous to judge, but he is also out of his infinite mercy, quicker to forgive and show mercy than you or me. And every time you wonder if God's judgment ought to, ought to be really the way that it is, and every time we realize that God is judging and we question how can God do that, we ought to also out of the same voice say, how is it that God could even forgive? And just as loudly as we say, I don't know if God can destroy and smite, we ought to just as loudly celebrate, I don't know how God can forgive and redeem. Because this is the nature and perfection of God. God is always quicker to judge, but God is also quicker to forgive. And when God smites something, we don't typically like it because we can only judge things by our own brokenness. But it also ought to shock you when God forgives someone. And the radical nature of God's wrath is also proportional to God's radical nature of his grace. Such that even the worst, I mean, this, just pick the worst day of your life. That's the day Jesus died for you. Pick the worst criminal. Pick the worst, most evil person that we could even think of in written history. And Jesus Christ, knowing full well that person's inner corruption and inner rebellion, happily said, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And so in the same measure that God's wrath seems radical to our small minds, so also his infinite mercy is humbling and almost utterly devastating to our small minds because neither do we have the capacity to begin to, concept, to have a concept of his mercy. This is the picture. God sends his people a message. The message first is to Hosea, but that message is meant to be visible for people. And the message is very clear. People are unfaithful. People have forsaken their creator. And it's not just that they harmed him, it's that they broke a sacred covenant. They broke a sacred commitment. And in the great way in which Gomer forsook the commitment she had with Hosea, so also on an infinite level, we have forsaken the Lord. And as a result, 
our sin, our rebellion, our unfaithfulness deserves vengeance and punishment. Such that as we saw one day, on that day, I will break the bow of Israel. I will destroy these people and I will do it in this valley. You see, Hosea is not an easy book. It begins with a prophet receiving a command to marry a prostitute. And then promptly describes the birth of, we saw one here, three children. And even through the names given to these children, there is a bizarre and radical nature to God's pending judgment. And throughout this book, there's mixed metaphors. There's symbols going over and over. and They're overlapping and they call back to the first covenant that God made with His people in Genesis. And the ways in which He continues to show mercy time and time again. Such that Hosea, even though it's a difficult book, paints a very graphic picture of God's love. And the shocking nature of the identity of Gomer and her relationship with the prophet Hosea is meant to illustrate the shocking nature of our sinful identity and our relationship with a perfect God. Don't miss that. The shocking nature. Again, like the, this is supposed to make you go and reach for your kid's ears. This is supposed to make you reach for earmuffs and go, I, I don't know if we can talk about this. And I don't know, I'm, I'm not even sure if you can say those words in a church setting, right? Can you say the word whore? Isn't that, like that's, can you say that? And it's meant to catch you off guard. It's meant to paint a picture of a kind of relationship that's provocative in nature. It's supposed to be shocking. And it's meant to illustrate the shocking nature of our own rebellious sinfulness put against God's holiness. And you ought to ask yourself, how, how do I... How do I describe, I, I have had to walk through this myself, how, how do I describe this to my six and four-year-old? Like, how do I put this in language that they would understand? And when you begin to ask that question, you have begun to scratch the surface of what God is called to do. How, how do you share the shocking nature, the sacrifice of Jesus for your sin and mine to a four-year-old, to a six-year-old? When you begin to scratch the surface of this, how, how do I explain this concept of, of whoredom and prostitution in such a way that a child might understand, and, and not in a harmful way, but when you begin to scratch the surface of that, then you begin to scratch the surface of the infinite nature of God's goodness. How, how do we really communicate this good news to a four-year-old, to a six-year-old? How do you demonstrate it? And it ought to be just as shocking, just as provocative. Here's why I think that. I heard a, a kind of a modern day philosopher put it this way. The world is rated R, but, they're no, but no one is checking IDs. Right? The world is rated R, but no one's checking to make sure everyone's old enough to get in. So therefore, do not try to make it G-rated by imagining that the shadows do not exist. And do not only try to hide your children from the world in darkness forever. And do not pretend that there is no danger. Instead, train them. Give them sharp eyes and bellies full of laughter. And make them dangerous to the world. Make them yeast. That's a reference to a parable of Jesus. So that when they've grown, they will pollute the shadows with light. 
It is for us to hold up the radical nature of God. So don't shy away from the disgusting and maybe repulsive and at least for us in our culture, offensive ways in which this lands on us. Resist the temptation to see that God works in ways that we like. Often God works contrary to those ways because his glory is the ultimate goal. So there's some tasks that we as people in our culture have to undertake. One first and foremost is recognize our own cognitive fallacies, our own functional cognitive fallacies that exist in the world. My favorite one is, is a new one that's come up in the, probably the last 10, 20 years, um, and that cognitive fallacy is called emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning is the assumption that if I am hurt emotionally, then there must be an object of offense. Even though I can't prove it or show that it exists outside of my own emotional experience, I assume that it must exist because inside it does. And this picture of emotional reasoning is prevalent around us, and it just assumes that if your feelings of hurt are hurt, someone must have done something wrong. Now, I say reject that, because that's simply built into our own worship of self-gratification. It's built into our own idolatry of self-fulfillment and physical pleasure. Such that whenever anything bad or difficult happens and harms us emotionally, we assume it must be evil. We assume it must be bad. Because God, after all, and this is a God that we have created idolatrously for ourselves, for our own sake, only wants me to be happy. God only wants my pleasure. And God sent His Son, Jesus, to endure the cross so that I could be happy forever and ever. And this is a fallacy that we have imposed, an idolatrous fallacy that we've imposed upon the character of nature of God, such that whenever anything bad happens or harmful happens to us, we immediately, and maybe you don't do this, maybe you're better than the culture in this, but we immediately looking for someone to, go looking for someone to blame. Who is to blame for the harm that I now feel? Who is to blame for the imposition I find myself in? Who is to blame for this hurt? And what must be done to fix it? Because the assumption is, it must be fixed. Because the hurt must be bad. And yet we find the radical nature of this loving God to be contrary to the assumptions of emotional reasoning. So much so that God actually is glorified despite those awful things. And the first thing that He asks Hosea to do is to go and marry a person who will not be faithful. Just begin to realize the radical nature of this command as you and I might receive it in our culture. Oh, you what? I'm supposed to marry the one, God. Like a unicorn that comes out of the clouds. Then I'll know that's the person I'm supposed to marry. Right? What, what if we're not compatible? You get this? Do you hear the language of our own culture? Do you hear the language and the assumption that's built into this? That you are here for your own pleasure and self-gratification and not for the glory of an infinite God. But, but God, she's, she's, she's kind of has a past. She's kind of been around the block. This isn't, can she really wear a white dress? You get this? You get the assumptions that are built into our own practices here. And then you begin to realize the radical nature of God's demonstration of His character to the world. He's the one who commanded it. In our own story, we would be like, God commanded me to marry this person, but then they, I found out they were unfaithful. I found out I don't really love this person anymore. They're not the person I married. 
I love how Jesus, or excuse me, God here kind of demonstrates his love for us. He jumps all the way past it like, no, no, Hosea, just so you know that you're not going to get in over your head and marry a girl that's going to turn out to be unfaithful. I want you to know she's unfaithful. I want you to see how unfaithful she is. I want you to see her promiscuity. I want you to see her immorality. And I want you to promise the rest of your life for her anyway. You begin to taste how radical and how countercultural this is. And if this is a picture of God's love for us and a picture of our forsaking God, then oh, wow. Let the offensiveness sink in on you. Let it make you indignant. Let it be graphic because in so doing, you will begin to realize the graphic and radical and provocative nature of God's love having chosen you in your promiscuity. I mean, what is prostitution but selling yourself to the highest bidder? But just put this in context. Who owns us right now? Right? Like who's, who's bidding for our attention and our hearts? And who's getting it? Who's really, like when, when it comes up, who's, who's got your attention? I mean, I, mine, I've integrated into every area of my life, but I won't lie that this one, this little apple sign, oh my goodness, they own me. And they, and they got me for cheap. They grab my attention every time they throw something out there. Apple Watch, what time is it, right? You know what I'm saying? That excites me. That makes me, i like, ooh, that would be awesome. What are the trinkets that got you? If this is a picture of our own relationship to God and the ways in which we sell ourselves short for everything else in the world, let me just add, what, what's got you? Let me rephrase it this way. If I were to look at your schedule, what's got you? If I were to look at your bank account, who's the highest bidder? If I were to look at your relationships, who owns you? We begin to realize that this kind of promiscuity, this faithlessness that we demonstrate is alive and well in our own culture. And yet, in spite of that, God speaks a word of restoration and redemption to you today. And if you would just look away from those things that grab your attention and grab your heart and hold your affections captive and look to Him, He will restore you and replace where those unsatisfying, those unsatisfying contraptions and gadgets leave you empty and wanting. He will give you a faithful and committed relationship, a love that is without end forever and ever. Amen. I shared this with you uh, on a regular basis, but I did this probably a year ago and the numbers were different, but let me just blow your mind. You know what's coming out next? The iPhone 7. Haha. <laughs> I just blew your mind, right? Didn't see that coming. iPhone 7, here it comes, probably next, I don't know, maybe next September, like every other two years before that. And do you know how valuable your iPhone 5 or, or 6 or whatever, whatever you got, your 6S for some of you, do you know how valuable that will feel in that moment when that new trinket comes along? Ugh. Ugh. You, you have a 6S? <laughs> and you'll want to throw it away. And in those moments, you realize how unsatisfying the things that own us really are. And how ultimately unsatisfying those things always will be. They never deliver. They never give the happiness that they promise. 
There's always something new or there's always something better. There's always a promotion you want. There's always a relationship that's better. The grass is always greener on the other side. And we always want to go and to do that. And Hosea was commanded by God to go and find the person that knew the grass was greener on the other side and love them anyway. Because that's how God works. God uses the circumstances to demonstrate something powerful to the world. And it flies in the face of what our culture teaches us about happiness and self-fulfillment. You see, God reveals his character most clearly amidst the brokenness, amidst the fallen and sinful world. And he doesn't ignore it, but instead he jumps right into it and he wears it. And then he asks his people to wear it with him to demonstrate his character and to turn their back on their own brokenness. But sometimes it's remarkable and costly. Through Jesus, through us. You see, God meant for Hosea's life to be a picture of himself for the world to see. Make sure you catch that. It wasn't only God's will that Hosea would write down what God said and he would lick it and throw it in the mailbox. That wasn't God's will for Hosea only. It also was God's will for Hosea's life to be a picture of himself for the world to see. This is the gospel of God. God does not love us when we are obedient and faithful to him. If that were the case, then he would not love us at all. But instead, God is faithful when we are unfaithful. God loves us when we do not love him back. And it is in the midst of those circumstances that his character, his love and his mercy are most visible and accessible to the world. It is in the midst of evil that we see in the world that his goodness stands out the most clearly. Therefore, God can actually in his sovereignty use evil to show his goodness more clearly. It is in the brokenness of the world that, he, that his reconciliation stands out most clearly. Therefore, God can use even the brokenness in the world in our own lives to show his power to reconcile more clearly. It is in the darkness that his light shines the brightest, so much so that therefore God can even use that which is dark to show his light more clearly. It's in the betrayal and the crucifixion of his own son that his commitment to us becomes the most clear. Therefore, God can even use the abandonment, the cursing, the spitting, and the crucifixion of his beloved and perfect son to show his forgiveness more clearly. This is the canvas with which our God chooses to paint. This is the medium that our God does not avoid, but instead jumps readily into to demonstrate his love. So much so that we can see the gospel clearly. Clearly, It is when this God wears our sorrows and wears our grief that we begin to see how good he really is. So I want to finish with this. Matthew chapter 11. If you want to turn with me there, we'll, we'll kind of end up there. Matthew chapter 11, there's a picture of this. And Jesus speaks some ominous words. Matthew chapter 11, we find ourselves in a really difficult situation. 
John the Baptist, who has committed his life to creating a way for people to see Jesus, has now, because of his own words against Herod and his family, been thrown into prison. So when Jesus, in verse 1, finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities, as was Jesus' custom. Verse 2, now then, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, now I want you to grasp the loaded nature of this question. Uh, We have questions in my own household. I don't want you to miss this that are loaded in nature. You don't want to answer the question. You want to decipher the meaning, right? This is important. So when my wife says, hey, do you want to take out the trash for me? She's not asking a question. There's, There's a meaning there. And if I don't decipher the meaning and I just answer the question, I'll miss out and I'll pay for it, right? So, hey, do you want to mow the lawn today? She's not asking, right? And if I go, yeah, or no, I mean, it's just a bad thing. Instead, I need to see that for what it is. She's communicating something that's really important. John is doing the same. John has already seen that the Spirit of God descend upon Jesus after his baptism like a dove and heard the voice audibly of God himself saying, this is my son whom I love, whom I'm well pleased. But then he asks, are you the one or should we look for another? Do you get what John is saying here? He already knew the answer. But he's simply saying, are you going to leave me here in prison? Are you going to get me out of here? Is my bad circumstance going to be changed or should I look for another? Is my misery in prison going to get better in this life? Or should I go sell myself to someone else? Did you catch it? Hey Jesus, are you the one? Or should I look for someone else? And Jesus does an amazing thing. He quotes Isaiah 61 and he leaves out a key phrase. Verse 4, Jesus answered to them, Go and tell John what you see, what you hear and what you see. What what you hear and what you see. That the blind receive their sight and that the lame walk and that lepers are cleansed and that the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who does not offend me. This is ironic because if you flip to Isaiah 61, what Jesus is quoting, there's a phrase that's missing and it says, namely, and the captives will be set free. And so it should have read, if he was quoting Isaiah 61, right after the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are here, the deaf here, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them, and the captives are set free, John. Instead, he ominously omits that particular place. And Jesus then begins to honor John and says that, in fact, John, even though he's in prison, is actually greater than all of those born among women. Verse 11. There's no one greater And yet one in verse 11, who is least in the kingdom of heaven, that is, Jesus' kingdom, is greater even than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom, that is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, has suffered violence, and violent people take it by force. For all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, then he is, in fact, the Elijah to come. For he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Did you catch that? Probably by means of some form of emotional reasoning, John assumed that since he was in prison, something must have gone wrong. Something must have happened that was bad. And so he says, Jesus, are you the one? And yet Jesus quotes scripture and ominously leaves out the point in which the captives are set free and says something even darker, that the kingdom of God sometimes comes by unwanted ways, ways that hurt. Here's what I will leave you with. 
if God really uses this canvas of misery and suffering that the world has to offer to display his goodness, then here's what I know about me and here's what I know about you and the ways in which he might have instructed you and I. Because after all, (laughs) think about this. God displayed his love to, uh, to the people through Hosea through a crummy marriage, right? Nobody nod, laugh, or raise their hand, but hello? That's kind of what we're good at in this culture. And yet, in that context, God used it to show his infinite and perfect love. So here's what I know. I've shared this with you before. I've, I've, I've never, we've never had a miscarriage. I've never been to the doctor and gotten a bad prognosis or a bad scan. Um, I've never lost a sibling. I've not yet lost a parent. I've not, let, I've not lost a son or a daughter. I haven't been bankrupt. I haven't been the victim of some violent or awful crime. Here, here's what I know. Maybe you have. Maybe you have. Maybe your story shares at least a piece of misery with that Hosea must have felt. Here's what I know. That is the canvas with which God wants to paint something infinitely beautiful. That is the setting in which God wants to create something amazing. In fact, God chooses it and God can allow it to happen so that you and I one day will know the infinite nature of his goodness forever and ever. And in the same way that out of an old rugged cross, we celebrate something like Good Friday. Out of the betrayal and death, out of our sorrows being thrown upon an innocent man, we celebrate life. So also, is it possible that God may have allowed some things in your life for his glory and your ultimate joy so that he might reveal his character to the world? Is it possible that God wants to use you in the midst of those circumstances, in spite of those circumstances, to demonstrate his character to that city, to the whole world? Let's pray. Father, this is a hard word It is a hard word to say uh, and even to pronounce. And it is a much, much harder word to receive and to live. And we ask in these moments that we would not be daunted by the weight of this, but instead we would be inspired that this, this daunting task did not offend or intimidate you but instead you rushed wholeheartedly in through jesus christ in the midst of our suffering it was while we were sinners while we were living in our brokenness while we were living as enemies to god that you chose to send your son to side with the enemy and win us back to you let us not be daunted by the gravity of this task but let us be inspired and overwhelmed by your goodness in the midst of it such that we might begin to look around us and see that the things that exist around us might actually be there to draw us closer to you. 
So for some in this room, maybe this belief in Jesus is the furthest possibility for them right now. They're, believing in Jesus sounds ridiculous. Just even now, would you begin to inspire them with the possibility that they might have endured innumerable, unspeakable things for the sake of knowing the one true God? Is it possible that, that you might have allowed awful things to transpire in this world so that your goodness would stand out in it? Is it possible that you have allowed terrible things to happen to us and around us so that we would finally experience the infinite and satisfying nature of your goodness? Is it possible that in the same way that you allowed Jesus Christ to be broken, to be stricken on our behalf, so also on the other side of that suffering we might see redemption and beauty. We might see the light more brightly than we ever have. We might see the color more beautifully than we ever have and we might experience this reconciliation more deeply than we ever have so god in these moments inspire us with your goodness that you have borne our sorrows to the extent that we can see clearly your character and we can look at jesus christ and know that you are good so that no one will ever have to wonder again what god is like we look at jesus and we see your mercy and we see your grace so also may it be said as people look at us that they can see the character of God. In spite tragic and awful circumstances, may it be said that God, you are visible in our lives through our word and deed. It's only by being changed by this blood of Jesus that this is possible. Amen.